1, verses 3 to 11. And today's sermon title is The Gospel Gap. Again, the scripture reading, it comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And the sermon title is The Gospel Gap. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For it is very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affections, and brotherly affections with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he, has, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Good morning. Good to worship with all of you this morning. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and we are in the middle of our Sunday morning teaching series where we've been looking at spiritual transformation, looking at the nature of who we are as human beings, at the nature of what goes wrong with us, and then what God does to reverse what's wrong so that he makes us more like himself. Feedback that I'm getting is that this has been really a helpful series. I want to offer something that might make it more helpful. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a retreat for another church, and the pastor came up to me and said something like, at our church we have kind of a tradition that we call QA. And he was careful to say, it's not QNA, it's QA because it stands for Question Authority. We all get in a big room and we ask questions of the speaker, and I thought, man, <laughs> what is this? He went on and said, people are not nasty, but it gives them a chance to ask questions that they have to the speaker about what we've been talking about, would you be okay doing that? And I was a little hesitant. I'm like, okay, wonder where this is going to go. It's a little bit like, you know, welcome to my parlor, said the spider to the fly. It turned out to be just a great time. Uh, we all got together for about an hour or so. People had the freedom to ask anything pertaining to what I had shared. It was really helpful. I heard where I had not, be, where I had not been as clear as I had wanted to be. Or I heard where people just wanted to hear a little bit more, where they wanted to have something fleshed out, like, okay, what does this look like in my life? Really good time. And I've been wondering if maybe that would be helpful for us too. And so I'm thinking, given what I'm hearing, maybe this is a time to try it out together. So next week after the service, I know there are a couple other things going on, but next week after the service, if you're not in one of those things, I'll be upstairs in D22, 
And if you have questions about the kinds of things that we've been doing in this series, places where I've been unclear or where you want to hear more, then let's get together. We'll talk together, and maybe we can learn and grow together. Okay, that's next week. This week, I want to draw our attention to a conundrum, to a puzzle that you find in the lives of God's people. We've been seeing that the problem with us as human beings is in our hearts, that we want something more than we want God himself, which then impacts everything that we do and think and feel in this world. And we've been seeing that God not only challenges us at the level of our hearts, but that he also changes our hearts. He gives us new hearts, hearts that want him more than they want anything else. And yet, as every single person in this room knows, we still struggle to want him. We still get caught up wanting and doing things that feel good to us in the moment. There are things that ultimately don't last. The happy, good feelings don't last. They only leave us worse off. And the question, I think, is why? Why do we do those things? How is it possible for you as a follower of Christ, someone with a new heart, to live in totally ungodly ways as if you didn't have a new heart? That's the issue that God addresses in this chapter today. And to unpack that, we're going to study two things today. First, we're going to look at the tragic possibility of not growing in your faith. And then second, how that's possible. Just two points today, fair warning, two points with a lot of subpoints. You might want to take good notes so that you're tracking along. Two points, the possibility of not growing in your faith and how that's possible. First, I want you to notice the underlying assumption that Peter makes about people in verses 8 and 9. He writes, For if these qualities, and he means that list of virtues that he's just run through in the verses above, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's working assumption, verse 8, the thing that he's trying to help you guard against is that you can be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that it is possible that you can have knowledge of Christ, that you can know things about Jesus, you can know things about what Jesus has done, and yet you can have that knowledge do absolutely nothing for you. That it can be ineffective, have no effect on how you live your life. That it can be unfruitful, unproductive. That it can fail to produce what it should produce in your life. That it can produce nothing, that there can be no results whatsoever. He's saying that knowledge alone mere mental acquisition of information, that that does not guarantee a godly life. That knowing godly things does not equate automatically to being a godly person. That knowing things is not the same as living them. Instead, it is possible to be ineffective and unfruitful in the Christian life. And when that happens, verse 9, it means that you're nearsighted and blind. You're spiritually blind. You can't see what is spiritually true. You don't have the ability to discern moral truth. You can't understand truth. 
And so you end up living a life that doesn't align with what God sees as true because you can't. You're blind to Him, blind to how He thinks, and so you end up living in a way that has nothing to do with Him, and yet, because you're blind, you think you're okay. In other words, you can come to church, you can go to Bible study, and you can be a bitter person. Or you can say and do things that just give in to your feelings. You can quit on relationships. You can feel cold toward people. You can be mean-spirited. You can gossip and slander. You can create divisions. You can do all of that and not be unaware, and not be aware, excuse me, not be aware that there's anything wrong with that. To think that you're doing okay. It is possible to be around Christianity and not experience the power of it in your own life. You can be ineffective and unfruitful while at the same time not knowing that you are. And that's what's happened to the people that Peter is going to talk about in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we didn't read it. In chapter 2, he says that there are people in the church who claim to teach about the Christian life, but whose own lives are just totally out of control. These people engage in drunkenness and gluttony, chapter 2, verse 13. They embrace sexual immorality, verses 14 and 18. They do all of this out in the open, verse 13, and they're arrogant. They despise authority, verse 10. They do and say what they feel like doing without an awareness of their true size in the universe, thinking that they're bigger than they are, that they have the authority to decide what is right and best in their own lives. And when you look at them from the outside, it's obvious that they're never satisfied. They're greedy, verses 3 and 14. They always want more for themselves. They're exploiting everybody else in order to get what they want out of life. Their lives are out of control. And they teach other people that what they're doing is really okay. That it is in line with what it means to follow Christ. They are utterly blind to the nature of spiritual reality. And they've set themselves up as their own authority on what is godly. Even when it's clear to everyone else that they're not living like anyone who follows Christ. And that's the danger for you and for me. That we can set ourselves up as our own authority. Become our own judges of what we think is good and right. Our own judges of what we're comfortable believing is true. And then we can teach that to others, sometimes with our words, but always with our example. Teach other people that it's okay to discount what God says in Scripture whenever you'd just rather do something else. And that is so easy to do. All you have to do today, and there are many people in the church who are doing this, all you have to do is take something you don't like as in Scripture and you label it as cultural, as culturally conditioned, even when Scripture doesn't label it that way. And then you can argue that since society has progressed over 2,000 years, that the faith also needs to progress, that it needs to be updated, adjusted, to keep pace with the modern world. And it's so easy to do that blindly, without thinking clearly, without asking the question, who's the authority for what I believe? See, if I'm going to take a part of Scripture and I'm going to set that part aside, if I'm going to declare that some parts are cultural, that they don't apply now, I have to ask the question, on whose authority am I doing that? 
there are places in Scripture where Scripture is clear that what is being discussed is culturally conditioned. And so by its own authority, it tells you that those things no longer apply in the way that they once did, that they now have a different expression than they once did, like the Old Testament sacrificial system or the clean and unclean laws that taught you what holiness means. There are those places in Scripture, but there are also places in Scripture where God's instruction is clearly not based in a particular cultural setting, but it's based in himself and in how he has structured life. Issues of sexuality, gender identity, male and female roles. Who is primarily responsible for discipling our children? Who determines how we understand the nature of persons? If I'm going to set aside any of those things, and I'm going to argue that those are culturally conditioned, time-bound, ethnically or politically bound, and then say that it's really okay for God's people to do something that He has said that they should not, if I'm going to say all that, I have to ask, on what basis am I saying that? On whose authority am I leaning to make God's Word say the opposite of what it actually says? And when you ask that question, invariably the answer comes back to my own authority, that I set myself up as my own authority, that I'm the judge of who, de who decides who I listen to most. And if that's the case, I'm asking an awful lot out of people to agree with me that, yes, we should set aside that piece of Scripture on the basis of my authority. Most of the time, however, we don't ask ourselves that question. We just go along with what we feel is right, with what we like. And God would say here that the reason that we do not ask the question is that there's an element of spiritual blindness that's involved, that we don't even see that there is a question that we should be asking, which in the context of what he's writing here is really odd. Because verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And when Peter combines those two words, he's not talking about two separate things. He's looking at the same thing from two different directions. He's saying that God has given you everything you need for life, for living, right here, right now. Not that one day when you die and go to be with Him in heaven that you will then have everything that you need, but that He's given you everything that you need right now for the remaining time that you spend on this planet. He's given you what you need for life, and He's given you everything that you need for godliness, to have a life that's lived in the way that He approves. In other words, He's given you everything that you need in order to be a godly person when? Now. To live out a godly life here on earth. That's what he means in verse 4 when he says that you now partake of the divine nature. 
it's not that you become divine, but that you now share in a lifestyle that God himself lives. That as you live out all of those qualities in verses 5 to 7, that you are actually embracing his own character traits. You think about that list of qualities. Virtue, what we would call goodness. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, we'd probably call it endurance. Godliness, brotherly affection, love for God's family, and love. What, what are those? Those are character traits of God. That what? That you now share in. You find lists like that in other places in Scripture. In those places, they're called the fruit of the Spirit. They're the result of God's Spirit living in you, changing you, so that you now live like He does. And that's what God promises to His people. These are His very great and precious promises that you can now share in the same kind of life that He already has. And so right now, here on this earth, you can be faithful to Him when you're tempted. You can use your gifts and talents to honor Him rather than to call attention to yourself. You can spend yourself on behalf of those who have less than you do. You can stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. You can be courageous in the face of bullies. You can be sacrificial in the face of need. And you can be gentle to everyone in both cases. You can turn the other cheek when you're hurt. You can forgive, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And you can let love cover a multitude of sins. God gives you all of that and a whole lot more. He's saying here that there is no resource that you now need for godly living, either for the things that you face personally in life or for what you deal with in any of your relationships. There is no resource that you need that you don't have access to right now. And so there's no excuse for not living a godly life, one that pleases God, one that he's happy with, a life that looks like how he would live right now if you and he traded places. God gives you everything that you need so that you can participate in the morality of his own life, so that you can participate in his nature. And he does that, last part of verse 4, gives you all these things, so that you can escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's saying right here that we have a new ability through what he's given us to resist sin at its source, at the level of desire, at the level of our hearts. Now, I want to take a brief aside here. Those two words in verse 4, sinful desire, they're actually translating one word in the Greek. And the Greek is a little more nuanced here than you might think as you read the English. The word is epithemia, and it has a range of meanings in English that are not captured by any one word. And so sometimes you'll see it translated as desire because of the context or longing. Sometimes it's lust, passion, covetousness. And you can hear in that list that there are some negative desires that it sort of moves in that direction. But the word itself is not automatically negative. Instead, epithemia refers to this strong, natural, morally neutral force that drives humans to satisfy the needs of life. It's a really important word for us, so let me repeat that definition. 
It's defined as a strong, natural, morally neutral force that drives humans to satisfy the needs of life. It's an inner desire that fixes itself on something and then drives the human being toward that something. And so it's possible for you to have positive desires, positive longings. You hear that in Luke 22:15, where Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. Same root word here. Really strong, good longing inside of him to eat the Passover with his disciples. Earnestly desired. Or in 1 Timothy 3.1, we learn that if you aspire to be an elder, you desire a good thing, that you've set your heart on something that's really good. Or just one more, 1 Peter 1.12, that the angels desire to look into, they long to look into the wonders of the gospel. And so these epithemia desires can be positive or negative. They're not always bad. They are always strong. It's an internal passion that drives you in a certain direction. Now, when God goes on to talk about the result of these desires, again in verse 4, the result is that they produce corruption that is in the world. And so you realize that this desire has produced something bad. It has produced corruption in the world. And you would rightly conclude then that there is something about this desire that makes it a bad desire, sinful desire, as our translators put it. But that does not mean that the thing that you wanted was bad in and of itself. You could have wanted something bad. You could have wanted something that God has said no to, like sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. That would be a bad thing to desire. But it could also be that what you want is a good thing to want, like sexual activity within a marriage, but that you desire this good thing in a way that is different from how God would desire it for you. Maybe you want it too much. Maybe you want it too little. And in that sense, you want this good thing in a way that is different from how God wants it. He wants you to have a strong desire that moves outward to please your spouse, a desire that calls you back to each other, that unites the two of you but you want it differently than he does, which means that you want it for something other than he does. And in that sense, you could want this good thing, sexual activity inside of a marriage, in such a way that is not good for your marriage. That then would be a desire that produces corruption in the world, produces corruption in your marriage. Do you see the nuance here? You can desire bad things, that's clearly bad, but you can also desire good things in a bad way, that's also bad. That's the kind of desire that God is addressing when what you want causes you to go outside of the boundaries that he sets for something in his world. Here's the tie-in with the last several weeks. When the Old Testament speaks about worship, about worshiping God or worshiping something else. It does so from within an ancient Near Eastern context. And so it will often talk about worship in the language of that day. It'll talk about multiple gods. It'll talk about idolatry. The choice there is to bow down to the God who made heaven and earth or to the other so-called deities. 
It takes the understanding of our worshiping hearts and it unpacks it in language that made sense within that culture. But then you turn a single page. You go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Malachi to Matthew, and you move from an ancient Near Eastern setting to a Greco-Roman one, and it's almost like the language of idolatry just disappears. You can find a handful of references to idolatry in the New Testament letters, but not a lot. Instead, what do you hear now? You hear the language of epithemia. You hear the exact same concept of worship, but it's now framed in a way that you can understand within a Greco-Roman worldview. It's unpacked in the language of desire, of what pushes and pulls you at the most fundamental level, of these internal pushes and pulls that affect how you live in the world. The language is different, Old Testament to New Testament, the concept is the same. The contrast is still there in the New Testament. It's still between worshiping God and worshiping something else. Instead, now you sort of understand that it's more between him and what he made. The contrast is between worshiping the creator or the creation. And so the question for you and me is when you desire, and all of us do, when you desire what do you desire most? Do you most desire the things that God does, that you would engage His creation in the ways that He would? Or do you desire things in the creation so much, so strongly, that you want them outside of the boundaries that God has made them for, the boundaries that God has set them for? And this might help with a question that I've heard during this study. Because so many of the things that we're talking about can be good things. And so maybe you've wondered, how can a good thing be an idol? How can a relationship be an idol? It's a good thing made by God, right? How can that be idolatrous to want that? Or how can feeling proud of doing a good job be an idol? That's just you working out part of what it means to be an image of God, to work with the world that God has made to draw out its goodness how can that be idolatrous to want that? Or how can a home or a car or a sweater be an idol? Aren't those just good things that God makes possible in his world as a taste of his love for you? Here's how. A good thing becomes an idol when you desire it like you desire nothing, like you desire nothing else or when you desire it in a way that God would not. When your desire is no longer within the bounds that God would set for it and becomes an evil desire. A good thing becomes an idol when it becomes an ultimate thing. When God and his ways get pushed to the back of your mind so that you can have this thing that you desire in the way that you desire it. And it's this, this internal desiring that goes off the rails that causes corruption in the world. And please hear this. This is a really important place where Scripture challenges how our modern world thinks. God is saying here that it is not the world around you that causes you to sin. Your society does squeeze you. It can oppress you. It can put extreme pressure on you. Scripture will say that in other places. 
But what God is saying here is that society does not have the power to corrupt you. It does not have the power to force you to sin. It can put incredible pressure on you to sin, but it does not have the power to force you to live in a way that God would not. That comes from within you. And so Scripture concludes that the corruption you find in the larger world starts here, inside of each one of us. It's a radically different reading of human nature than the one that you find in our modern era. Our modern world says that the self is good and that the self is harmed by forces that come against it from the outside and that what it most needs is to dig down inside itself and find resources from the inside, find coping mechanisms in order to deal well with this corrupting world. This verse says it's completely the other way around. That the self on its own is not good. That it is what causes harm, corruption out in the larger world because of what's inside. And that what the self really needs is help from the outside, uncorrupted help, to rescue it from itself. That's where the gospel comes in, right? Verse 3, that God has called us by his own glory and excellence, not by our own glory and goodness, that he comes to us from outside of us in order to give us what we did not have, which is the ability to escape our out-of-control desires so that we can now live like he does. And yet, despite all that God does to rescue us from ungodliness, we can still get caught up in it. How do you know if that's you, if you've been caught up in it? It's because, verse 9, you lack these qualities you don't manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life, or, this is very important, or verse 8, those qualities are in your life, but they're not increasing. You're not growing in them. You're stuck. And so your level of goodness right now is still pretty much the same as it was five years ago. Or your knowledge of Christ really has not grown over the past decade. Or you don't endure with difficult people or difficult circumstances any better now than you ever did. When you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your own life or you haven't seen yourself becoming more godly over time, growing in love, then this passage invites you to agree with God that something has gone wrong. That your faith is ineffective and unfruitful despite everything that God's given you. Which brings us to point two. How is that possible? How can our worship be broken again after everything that he's done for us and after everything that he's given us? Think again here about the logic of this passage. Verses three to four, God gives us everything we need so that verses five to eight, we now live in the same kind of ways that God himself does. And yet something, verse nine, can interrupt that process so that it's possible to lack the fruit of the Spirit that he's given us his promises to grow in. To instead be nearsighted and blind. Why? Verse 9, because you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. Brothers and sisters, the critical component as to whether you are effective or ineffective in living the Christian life is not where you were born. 
is not when you were born. It's not who was in control of the country in which you were born. It's not who you were born to. It's not who you lived with. It's not what you did or didn't do. It's not what did or didn't happen to you. It's not what privileges you did or didn't have. The critical component as to whether you will be fruitful or unfruitful in your faith is whether or not you forget that you've been cleansed from your former sins. Say it positively. It's whether you remember the gospel. Now, remembering here does not mean that you had a mental lapse, that for some reason you just can't recall, gee, what, what did Jesus do in his life, death, and resurrection? Forgetting means that you don't take his forgiveness and everything that went with it into account as you live your life. Instead, you live now as if what he did has no practical bearing on how you live. Let me try talking about this first positively, and I think that'll make it a little more clearer what forgetting means. What does it mean to remember the gospel, to rely on what Jesus did for you and me on the cross? It means that you approach life with an active awareness of two things. First, you are actively aware, it's right on the front of your mind, that you had to be cleansed from your sins, that on your own you could not do enough to make yourself feel good about yourself. Couldn't cleanse your own conscience. But Jesus could. That he could cleanse your conscience from the bad things that you've done. And because you are consciously aware that you can't cleanse you, you don't waste your time trying. You don't waste your time looking for things in this life to make you feel like a good, decent person. Someone who deserves to be loved. Because you know that on your own, you're not. And you know there isn't anything on this earth that can cleanse you either. There's nothing strong enough to take away the guilt from your conscience when you do something wrong. Nothing here that can help you to try to make up for the past or just try to forget it. Instead, you don't look for all of that. You trust that what Jesus did was enough to cleanse you, and you now walk through this life with the awareness that you are clean in the sight of the only one who really matters, the judge of the whole earth, regardless of what anyone else says to you. That's first, you remember that you had to be cleansed, and second, you live with an active awareness that God wanted to, that he wanted to cleanse you. He desired to cleanse you when nothing else could. That means that he loves you more than anything else can. And so you walk through this life right now with a present awareness that regardless of what you do or regardless of what happens to you or regardless of what anyone says to you or does to you, that you cannot be more loved than you are right now. And so you respond to life now from within this absolute embrace of God, this security that you can never lose. That's what it means to remember that you've been cleansed from your past sins, to remember the gospel. Now, what happens when you forget those two things, when they are not something you actively rely on? It means that you will actively rely on something else to handle the same things that Jesus dealt with when he went to the cross, to handle your guilt and to handle not being loved, not feeling secure. I was listening to a podcast this last week while I was exercising, put this really well said, God made us in his image as spiritual beings. 
And if that spiritual impulse is not directed toward the worship of the one true and living God, it doesn't disappear. It's just directed toward something else. It's absolutely right. So apply that principle. If you're not relying on Christ's cleansing work and on God's love to cleanse you, you will rely on something else to deal with the things in your life that you're not proud of. And so when someone confronts you about something that you said or did, you will deal with that in some other way, some way that makes you feel okay about yourself and feel like you've got a place here on earth. When you wake up in the middle of the night anxious and worried because of things that you've done, if you're not relying on Christ and what he's done, you will deal with that in some other way. When someone treats you badly, you'll deal with that in some other way. When you feel insecure, like you have to prove yourself to yourself and prove yourself to everyone else, if you're not relying on what Christ did for you and his love for you, you will rely on something else. And so you still might talk about having your sins forgiven, but you'll live as if that makes no real difference to you. And instead, you will look horizontally. You'll look to the creation for what God offers you vertically. You'll look for some other way of believing that you're okay today. And it's that look, that reliance, that will undermine your faith. You will move away from relying on the gospel for daily living. You'll think to yourself, maybe the gospel isn't everything that I need. And you'll start looking for substitutes. And you'll discover this world is full of them. And so you'll look to relationships. You'll look to people to affirm you, to make you feel good about yourself give you a place here that where you fit in. You'll look to achievements to validate your life. You'll look to wealth. Look at all the things that I've got to prove that you've made good decisions in life. You'll look to education and knowledge, to being smart, to show that you have valuable gifts, that you belong, that you should have a seat at the table. You'll look to power and positions to make up for your failings and your insecurities. You'll create a place for yourself at the table. And you'll look to indulgence, food, alcohol, sex, entertainment, to mask over the things about yourself that you don't like, to forget about them, or at least fuzz them out a little bit, even if it's just for a little while. You will look to something in the creation either to make up for what you've done or to cover over the memory of it, something that will affirm you as a decent, lovable person. And in pursuing that thing that your dry, desire drives you toward, you won't care what you have to do in order to get that. If you have to run over top of people, you'll do that. If you have to manipulate people, you'll do that. If getting angry and blowing up gets it done, you'll give in to your temper because it works for you. If nagging does the same thing, you'll be incessant. Never let a conversation end. If saying what someone wants to hear gets you what you want, you won't say what you really think, but you'll sell your, your intellectual integrity. Or if pleasure gets you what you want, gets you a little bit of a thrill, or it gets you a sense of closeness and belonging, you'll sell your physical integrity. You will do whatever you have to in order to get what you desire. And in that process, you'll get comfortable with things that you do wrong. You'll stop thinking that sin is a big deal. 
something that takes the death of the perfect Son of God to get rid of. Instead, it won't feel like a big deal to you because it just it gets you what you want to make you feel better. And so you'll end up accepting what you shouldn't, accepting the things as normal that Jesus died to cleanse you from. And you'll do that because you've stopped believing that God's love will satisfy the deepest needs and longings of your heart. And you look to something else instead to do that. This is how you forget the gospel. And this is the greatest danger to the church. Persecution from outside can do what? It can take away your property. It can harm you physically. It can take your life. But this kind of forgetting will shut you down spiritually. Far worse than losing your life. This is the greatest danger to the church. And it comes not from outside the church, but from inside. Because it's in every one of us. If you're looking to something else to make you feel okay about yourself, to love and affirm you, You've forgotten what Christ has done for you. You've forgotten your most fundamental identity as a child of God. Instead of producing the fruit of the Spirit, your faith will be ineffective and unproductive. Your desires will be out of control, out of bounds, different from how God desires. And your primary contribution to this world will be to add to the corruption in it. Now, here's the good news. And there really is good news in this passage. God himself has given you everything you need to escape that kind of life. That's why he wrote this, to make you aware of how you could get tripped up, to help you escape, to invite you to turn back to him and his resources so that you can escape. We're about to celebrate communion. Let me invite you, take a few moments before we receive this from Christ. Meditate on what he's done to cleanse you. Meditate on what it cost him, not just on the cross, but to live out his entire life for your sake. Meditate on how much he loves you in order to do that. And then ask him before we eat, ask him to make that love real to you. Let the power of his love give you confidence that he will help you. Even if you've been relying on something else, even if you've been relying on something else for a long time, confess to him. Confess that you've forgotten the gospel, that you haven't trusted him to be enough, but man, you really want to. That you want to rely on him to go through life like you rely on nothing else. Let's take a few moments to pray now.